Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. I envisage regulation coming in to the travel industry on a scale that we've never ever seen before. And it's not going to be regulation suggested by the travel industry because we won't. We're too fragmented and too disparate all over the place. Mm. It will come from global governments regulating what the industry does. I, I can't disagree with that. The tragedy is it will come too late. Yeah. I mean, you know, somebody said to me recently, says, Andrew, what would you do? No, actually, somebody said to me four years ago, what would you do? I says, well, now remember, this is a pause. Uh, once uh, alternatives to carbon burn are enabled, everything comes back to normal. In other words, once the aircraft goes literally carbon neutral, then you can fly to Australia three times tomorrow if you want to. But he says, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd take every aircraft out of the air. He says, um, he says what else would you do? I says, I'd close every coal-fired power station, even if we had outages. He said, what else would you do? I said, call the dairy herd by 50%. And he says, you're mad. I says, I'm not. He says, you're mad. 16 months later, that happened with COVID, literally. Every aircraft was out of the air. Nobody was complaining. Nobody was complaining. Was going, you know what? I want to travel to London tomorrow to go to the theater. They're going, no, no, no. I'm not going near the airport because cause and effect, I need to stay at home and look after my mother or whoever. The reality is that the cause, of, now mine are extreme views and I'm, I'm not saying they're right. Please don't get me wrong. But the blissful ignorance and the pace with which we are progressing this issue of climate, um, I have three words. Hell is coming. Good afternoon, the Tourpreneur community, and welcome to yet another podcast for you. I'm in sunny Scotland, and today I'm happy to be talking to Edna McGovern. Edna is a professor in marketing at Sacred Heart University, Fairfield, Connecticut. Our background is we met in beautiful Kerry Island, where we were at an AI conference way, way back in September, which is only a couple of months back, but it seems like a lifetime ago. And the AI conference was totally focused on AI implications and impacts on tourism. Hence why I was there. And there was people from all over the world presenting, some beaming in, some of us actually there in stunning Kerry. It was a great few days. And when Edna gave a, a presentation, something that he said that was not about artificial intelligence jumped out and grabbed me and made me started thinking a lot. And it started making me digging a bit deeper. And what he said was, is by 2050, a lot of the tourism infrastructure as we know it today, and we're talking big global scale infrastructure, is likely to be in all the wrong places. And that sort of grabbed me and thought, well, how is the tourism infrastructure going to be in the wrong place? But 
listen to as we go on to this and see where we go. And maybe you agree or disagree at the end of this podcast on whether his forecast was right. So welcome, Edna. Thanks very much for doing this today. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Peter. Uh, always good to have conversations on the most important topic. Yes, for sure. If we get this one wrong, the rest of the topics become a bit irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. So tourism infrastructure in the wrong place. What? Just talk us through that and what does that mean? Yeah, and, and you phrase it very well, Peter. I, I actually maybe even phrase it better than I presented that comment in uh, Kerry. Um, it really is looking at the whole evolution of climate change in the context of um, our day-to-day -day normal lifestyles being disrupted or becoming more disrupted based on um, effectively one could say that the, the sort of the destruction of nature and form, even though that's a separate issue with regard to biodiversity, but but the the context of our carbon emissions, uh, the context of what that means for the change in weather patterns as a consequence, and how the world will uh, shape itself over the next 50 to 100 years. People normally use 2030 as one marker, 2050 as another marker, and then, of course, 2100 as another marker. I think it's important to say at the outset, and this is where the science gets uh, very heavy uh, pressure, I think. It's impossible to predict this with any degree of accuracy regarding dates. Um, and whilst over the last 30 to 40 years with the evolution of climate change, there have been those attempts. In some cases, they've been right. In other cases, they've been wrong. And as a consequence, people can turn around and say, well, you know, yeah, I don't believe you this time because uh, your dates aren't accurate. And um, science is not does not have the capacity or the ability to predict these dates accurately because we're talking here of decades, if not uh, 20 or 30 year timeframes. Um, so we're not talking over the next three months or over the next six months, this will happen. Like with COVID, uh, one has to give great credit to the scientific community. Actually, one has to uh, bow in front of the scientific community with regard to its ability to produce a vaccination and to allow us to get back to a relatively uh, a normal speed of life so quickly. And if this had happened 50 years ago, there's a good chance the world would have been closed down for three to five years, like the plague, um, with people not able to move based on the consequences of cause and effect, which was COVID potentially death as the worst effect. Um, so the, the scientific piece here with regards to time frame, I think is very important in defense of the science. Um, and I'm not a pure, I'm a behavioral scientist, but I'm not uh, as such a science a scientist of the sciences, the hard sciences, biology, physics, chemistry, and everything that goes into these conversations. I would have an awareness of them, but that's not my expertise. So in defense of uh, the predictions that are coming from there, um, it's very hard to nail them. So that's what I would say at the outset. In our conversations here, people might say, oh, well, that's rubbish. It won't happen by then. And parts of the scientific community might say, well, we don't know if it may happen by then. Um, but I think we're seeing now We've seen it in the last, I would suggest, three to five years in an observation pattern that it's now becoming close to, um, as uh, uh, you know, Ulrich Beck once wrote, uh, you'll only know it when you either see it, feel it, or touch it. Um, and we're beginning to see it, feel it, and touch it with regard to our weather patterns. And we talked about it just before the start of the podcast about you in Scotland today, uh, minus 15 degrees centigrade four days ago, now up to 12 degrees today. Um, the United States is heading for significant blasts in the next week, which are, is threatening Texas and Florida, uh, which are two predominantly hot states with extreme cold temperatures. Um, and if we remember last year, Texas was, was hit with um, a cold 
spell that uh, crushed the, the, their energy infrastructure because they didn't have the capacity to, to heat homes. So when we look at the weather patterns changing, the reality is they are. The reality is, um, and this is a phrase that was used in my research back in 1992, and I'd be honest, at the time it scared me and still does scare me. It was a phrase that was used called the Dark Ages. And I remember going, what do you mean by the Dark Ages? And and uh, in re reviewing it, it was a term used to explain that all um, uh, forecasting will be no longer valid because uh, the weather patterns of the previous 200 years will be wiped. In other words, the data of what happened in 1850, 1880, 1920, 1940, 1960 would all of a sudden become irrelevant to what's going to happen tomorrow because the weather pattern shift would be so significant that um, our experts that manage the, the, the weather data would be left in a situation of saying, I can't predict what's going to happen in two weeks. Um, whereas in the past, I've been able to predict within a 90 degree certainty that this will happen in the next two weeks. Um, so that, that loss of predictability um, amongst uh, the meteorological uh, experts I think is becoming more and more evidence as we're seeing significant changes in our uh, weather patterns and somewhat being shocked. Uh, shocked specifically if it's too cold or if it's too hot, but not shocked in the middle because there's still a degree of comfort that we can live our lives in, in a sense of normality. Um, but too cold and, and, and uh, snowstorms, then obviously our lifestyle is significantly disrupted. Uh, and I think it was recently in northern New York, there was up to, I think, four feet of snow that fell on one day. Um, you know, you don't dig your way out of that in 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 twenty minutes. You're talking there about possibly two to three days at least to get back to any sense of normality. Or the other extreme being too hot, whereby the temperatures are leaving one uh, not able to go outside. Um, and I had friends this summer in Texas who quite simply got up in the morning and pulled the blinds at eight thirty and, and and left the blinds down till four o'clock and they didn't leave the house because they were relying on air conditioning to be able to keep the temperature habitable within the house but they weren't going outside. So as these uh, become more uh, unpredictable, less normal, um, my point to the aspect of the, the tourist destinations changing is really, and I'm not so sure changing is the right word, I'm, I'm, uh, but let's stay with that for the moment, is becoming a serious threat. Um, because if I'm uh, sort of saying I'm going to Australia next year, which is a long-term plan, and I would plan, at I'm sure, at least 12 or six months to go, and I look at parts of of, of um, Australia at the moment with regard to the serious flooding that they've experienced in a number of areas of, of um, Florida, or sorry, of, of Australia, I may be speaking to my mother or my brother or my son out there saying, look, I'm thinking of coming over. And they may say, well, look, at you know, can we just be a bit careful here? Because at the moment, we've had a crisis. We're in recovery mode, and we don't know what next year looks like. Um, that would, for me, would be one example of just the type of second guessing that the tourist or us as conventional citizens and, and wishing to explore the planet will be taking more into account on a day-to-day -day basis about, can we go? And if we can, are we sure we will enjoy our experience? With regard to the movement, I would suggest Pakistan, not a great example, but I think an example to, to, to boot uh, was uh, the flooding they had approximately seven weeks ago. Um, whereby something like over 30 million people were displaced, over a million people lost their homes. Every tourist destination in that location was destroyed. It wasn't the case of, sorry guys, we got a bit of extra water here. We'll, 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 we'll pump it out and we'll see you next week. Most of their tourist destinations were destroyed, including hotels. Um, 
So it's not a case that uh, it's just the climate changing in the location, but it's the damage that the climate is doing in those locations that is will, I would suggest, tragically, I don't do this with any joy, I do it with great sadness, um, will become more difficult for people to understand the ability to travel and to go to that destination as to where um, uh, they, they should be able to have fun. And as we briefly spoke about um, earlier, just before we started again with regard to weather patterns, and I had talked about the article in The Guardian today, um, uh, talking about temperatures of up to uh, shifting in up to 20 degrees centigrade uh, in parts of the United States and parts of um, uh, South America. But one of, one of the comments is, you know, um, over the Christmas holidays, the air mass will retreat from central states with link across these with temperatures ranging from minus 10 to minus 20 degrees. They also claim that this possibly would hit Texas and Florida. So, you know, if I'm going to Florida for two weeks holidays, I'm not so sure I'm going to have a nice time if this air mass comes in. It says, meanwhile, South America will experience an extreme temperature divide this week. Temperatures in Argentina and Brazil will be at least 10 degrees above or below the climatological average, respectively. For Argentina and Paraguay, temperatures will be up to 20 degrees centigrade above average. With 40 degrees centigrade daytime maximum temperatures during the middle part of the week. I mean, and that's, that's, no, uh, you know, that's, that's not, well, this will happen in six months or, or, or six. This is happening. And the reality for the common man, if I can use that phrase, to understand that the climate conditions are changing significantly in regard to their ability to leave, live a normal lifestyle <clears throat> has to be understood and has to be significantly engaged with regard to how am I protected? Because when we talk about, Peter, tourists, and that's fine, and, you know, um, my action would be quite hard on, on, on this, but maybe we'll go into that later on. Before we become a tourist, we worry about our home. If our home gets attacked, we're not becoming a tourist because now we're struggling to maintain our identity of our existing lifestyle for, let's just say, 48 weeks of the year. So, you know, if something happens that threatens my home, whether it's in California at the moment, which is drugs. Uh, so let's be honest about it. We already have climate migrants out of California. There's no doubt about that. People have decided in the last six months, we're moving. Why? Well, my job in Texas or my job in New York and the schooling and uh, this climate thing is beginning to bother me. The reason they're moving is climate. But it's not the reason that they will say that they're moving. Because there's not enough evidence for them to be that fearful to move. Um, so the, 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 the context of, of, of the tourist uh, beginning to enjoy the ability to be a tourist, I think, has also got to look back to, well, how am I protected in my home environment? Um, and at the moment, uh, we're, we're relatively lucky in parts of Europe, but uh, obviously some parts of Europe, especially Germany, that had the flooding only two or three weeks ago. That scarred those locations, Peter. I mean, it scarred them with a sense of fear about, oh my God, I didn't believe that four feet of water could come into my home. And whilst it may scar the homeowner, from a psychological perspective, it destroys the child. Because now the child... One of the things that struck me after I heard you saying this in Kerry, so I started paying attention. I was lucky enough or unlucky enough to travel a lot. And I was in southern Spain when it isn't particularly warm. It was after the really warm period. It was still 20-odd degrees. But I was speaking to a lot of Spanish people. So where are you going on your holiday next year? And they were like, well, we did this year, and we all headed north. 
So the increase, whereas the whole of Northern Europe, as long as I've been on the planet, has been heading south. So for one thing, heat. Yeah. And heat in the south was why we went. Culture, food, all the rest of it was what the tourism industry built on top. But the reason Northern Europe went south was to get some heat, whether you came from Germany, Sweden, Norway, Scotland. Whereas now we're already seeing people coming to northern Scandinavian destinations, Scotland, from places like Seville, which were 48, 49 in the summer, to escape the heat. So we're already starting to see that switchover of, of people moving in the opposite direction. And that's very, very true. Um, I think one of the things, and, and, and that's why it's difficult for the, the normal individual's lifestyle to grasp these. They're not short-term decisions, they're long-term. And I think where it really beckoned to me in the last 15 years was the evolution and of, uh, uh, of vineyards in the south of England. Yeah. Um, and I was reading a piece recently talking about how some of the major players uh, in the wine industry were now buying up land in the south of England because the temperature and the climate was much more conducive to the growth of grapes because of the problems in, in the southern part of Europe. But there was something, now I will not get this date right, so I will not try and say it's right. But there was some comment about that they predicted that uh, vineyards would be uh, applicable in Edinburgh by 2050 or 2016. I was going, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, it, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, wine in Edinburgh, you must yeah. be joking. Um, but it's indicative of the shift. Uh, and I have no doubt that the industry sector, as in the wine industry, is already looking that far out as to how do we protect our business model. And it looks like we have to start shifting geographically to follow it. Um, yeah. And that is north. So your point's very well made, Peter. Your point's very yeah, that is They obviously have an issue with water and the, the amount of water they need on a regular basis right. consistently. It's right. and it's, a short, it's not a short-term industry, as you know. It's a long-term industry. Right. Yeah. So they are... I'm lucky enough to speak at a couple of wine conferences each year, which although I, I know not a great deal about wine, <laughs> it's, I'm speaking there on a technology basis, right. but it's already, certainly for a lot of them, depending on where they're located, it's in their top three conversations yeah, yeah, because they've seen the impact on their yield, the quality, yeah. all the rest of it, they've, and particularly the ones that have been in uh, family-owned businesses for generation after generation after generation. Right. They feel in a an obligation yeah. to look after it from a steward stewardship point of view. Yeah. Rather, it's not just a business; it's a it's a lifestyle and a family lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. But they're like this ground is not going to do what it did in the past going yeah. forward. Yeah. And coming coming back to your point about tourism and um, <clears throat> being that ground that did what it did in the past to attract people because of the scenery, because of the food, because of the culture, because of the climate predominantly. Um, those uh, limitations predominantly at the moment with excessive heat, um, even though there may be flooding, but it's predominantly not excessive cold weather that's uh, hurting those climates. It's excessive heat. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think as I said in, in the conference in, in, in Kerry, um, I think I had said, well, why would you go to Marbella from Scotland to swim if you go to Dingle in Ireland and get the same temperature and swim, you know, um, because that's what's going to happen. The, the southern uh, uh, parts of uh, the UK, England, and, and Ireland will become uh, very attractive because of the weather patterns of heat that they will bring in the coming years. Um, but it, it, it's this, it's just the whole uh, sense of, of tourist behavior before was about freedom, was about 
the ability to travel, what airline goes there, how do I stay, Airbnb enabling, oh God, that's great, I have more flexibility, uh, digital currency or, 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 or electronic uh, uh, payment methods. You know, this is brilliant. I don't have to get the currency. I can, I can use Venmo, you know, and everything. We're all enticing for the continuity of, of a world traveler, of um, the facilitation of the opportunity to, to go and explore those places. Now, I'll be honest about it. From, from a carbon emissions perspective, I'm ex I would be, and I'm sorry to say this, Peter, extremely critical of the tourism industry because uh, as, as a proportion of carbon burn per head, and obviously flight travel is the most severe and the most um, uh, difficult one to explain. Um, but it is one that's continuing to grow with excessive speed because of people's continued desire to travel. Yeah. I, was reading, I was reading a piece recently, and, and actually I've I, I lost the link and I've got to get back to it. I was talking about uh, um, the, the frequent flyers with regard to traveling, talking about taxes. Um, and the idea was that on the first flight, everybody would have one flight free a year. And second flight, there would be tax. The third flight, there'd be more tax. The fourth flight, there'd be more tax. I couldn't agree with more because I, I would suggest about 70% of the carbon emissions, uh, not be an accurate figure, but a significant percentage of the carbon emissions are are committed by about 15% of the flying population who get on a plane every day because they want to grab a, a Starbucks in San Francisco. Um, they have the wealth to do it. They have the desire to travel and they have no understanding of the consequences of their, their pollution. And the airline industry is not taxed. Uh, the car industry is with regard to petrol. Mm -hmm. And diesel, but the air industry is not taxed, which is a crime in the context of, you know, wh where is their contribution back to solving a problem that they're helping to create? Um, but the, you know, it's a powerful industry. It uh, is seen as being revolutionary and new, and most uh, countries are very scared to go near it. But it needs to be done because it needs to be. Yeah, one, one of the paradoxes I see—I don't just see this in the airline industry, but I see it across all travel. But this sticks out in the airline industry is. A lot of them now are cre create or claiming sustainability programs with becoming more green, X, Y, Z, new planes, make it, and it's all good stuff and it's all in the right direction. However, at the same time, they have these massive loyalty programs with millions and millions of members that are designed to make you fly more. Mm. <laughs> the loyalty, on one hand, we're, we're claiming we're more sustainable, but on the other hand, we're doing everything in the power we possibly can to take you as a member of our program and make you fly more, not less. So there's a complete disconnect on the, the two things. And, and this is the challenge. I mean, you know, not going into the, the, the sort of the philosophical argument about the tr trouble we're in, but you have capitalism on one side and you have nature on the other. And capitalists is clearly winning. There's, you know, our love of money, our love of wealth, our desire for materialism and consumerism, which we're seeing coming up to Christmas, personify in the Christmas present environment um, where, you know, uh, tragically, and I would suggest there's a number of families today that, that the kids have so many gifts to open that they barely open the first one before they're running to the second one that they don't know what they've got. We, we somehow felt that if we please people by gifting them or by enabling uh, the consumption of a materialist consequence, that they're happier and if we take them out in their Wellingtons and take a walk around the forests and come back and see a deer, yeah, um, you know, uh, and that's that's a tragedy, and that's on our individual cultures that have allowed that tragedy to evolve. But um, I often speak in my classes about this, and I, I know they think, and for the birds, but 
you know, I would say, I often go for a walk and have a talk with a tree. And they say, what are you talking about? I says, because that is what gives me the most sense of happiness, that that tree is there and I'm able to talk to nature. Then going into Walmart or Nordstrom's or Costco and spending another $300 on, on a device that I think will bring me happiness, which it won't. For, for the operators listening to this, and I could be totally wrong on this, I mean, I'm often wrong, but COVID did send a lot of signals about how we operate yeah. as an industry in changing times. And more, more, more interestingly, not how we operate, because at the end of the day, we were reacting to what was happening. Consumers, guests, travelers were the ones making the decision and we were reacting to them. But some of them decisions that made and the trend has continued was later and later and later booking, right going to last minute booking, a lot more travel being regional. So people to build confidence were traveling to shorter distances, often not using planes. And then when they did start using planes again, because they were allowed to, they didn't jump on across an Atlantic flight or to the other side of the world. They went on a two-hour flight because the risk analysis, whether they went through it, fully awareing what they were deciding or whether it's just something that goes through the brain so quickly. I don't want to go too far because it's too risky. Mm. So they were booking more last minute and they were going shorter distances. And that hasn't reversed as of today. That hasn't reversed. Mm. Long-haul travel still down significantly, but we had a big bounce up on local and short-haul travel. Yeah, I, I think your point is very, very, very well made. And I think it goes to the earlier point of the conversation. For me, as people begin to realize the potential threat or risk factor associated, um, and, and, and my initial work on this with regard to my studies was, was, was referred to the risk society, that we live in a society where risk is a pervasive part of our everyday existence. And as a consequence, we make decisions to avoid the risk and minimize any consequences. So it would be interesting if we had the data, we don't. But I, I, if you were to look at the average tourists up until 2021, I think you might have, let's, and I'm just throwing figures here to try and make the point, Peter. We might have found that they traveled on average 2,600 miles or they traveled 2,100 miles on average. Um, what I think what you're going to see is that average dropping significantly in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. The tourists will still travel, but they'll travel within a control zone that allows them an exit door if anything is to go wrong that causes them serious concern. So do I think people in Scotland might come to the south of Ireland rather than going to the south of Spain in the next five or 10 or 20? Yes. Do I think people in, in Ireland might decide to go to Scotland to experience the, the beauty of the country rather than going to Spain and not being able to go on the beach because they're going to get sunburned after five minutes? Yes. I, I, think, I think you will find a significant shift in patterns about people traveling between 200 and 800 miles quite quickly quite easily and quite willing to enjoy the spend for the break. They don't feel that they need to travel the 2,200 miles, but in the previous ability of a lifestyle, they were seduced by it because it was cost-effective that they could do it and that they would see a culture, for example, like the pyramids of Egypt, that they would see nowhere near the British Isles or Europe. And, but that now is being diminished. And that's really where we first met Peter, because I came into that conference talking about her virtual reality was going to be the option of seeing the pyramids of Egypt rather than actually flying there to give you a sense of travel, a sense of connection to the world without feeling totally disconnected because you've only traveled 500 miles in the last five years each year. Um, 
and uh, uh, you know that that's not specifically what today's about but with that context i think technology is going to start to replicate and replace the 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 desire to travel long distance because of the increased risk associated with such a journey well, one of the things of and again this could be completely madness just my opinion <laughs> but since world war ii finished we've been on a a journey of globalization society as a whole this is not about travel that's society as a whole because travel is the luxury end of globalization if you have a globalized market and the world's opened up and people are earning enough money to be middle class get some income coming in they start to travel and they start to travel locally then they start to travel regionally and they start to travel along it a long haul and that's where we've been on that journey since 1950 Mm. when general mass travel more or less started we've been on that never-ending journey and we still have a population growing where the middle class particularly in Asia, are coming into a point where they want to travel. So there is no lack of demand for travel. It's baked into the population system and the population economic with growth. Well, if I'm right, and like I say, I could be wrong, I think globalization's peaked. I think not because of uh, environmental issues, although that is playing a part. I just think it's run its course, and we have seen peak of globalization actions. Russia and then the recent actions invading Ukraine has played a big part of that. A lot of the actions China's been carrying out, not as blatantly as Russian done, but still damaged. It's making countries, governments, and companies rethink their whole alignment with the world and how supply chains work with the world. Mm. And I'm seeing people pulling back into regional blocks rather than pushing out all the time, globalization, globalization, globalization. I now see blocks starting to form again. Like, we're only going to work with the people that we really, really trust. Mm. And we're only going to get trade in these blocks. That, if it keeps happening, will definitely have a kick on into the travel industry as well. I, I think that's an excellent point. And I would agree with you. I don't think it's mad at all. I think it's very astute. I mean, let, let's be honest about it. Brexit was, was, was that statement before Putin went into Ukraine. And and, and and before the issues with regard to Trump in the United States, um, not being disrespectful to the political system uh, in in talking to it, but it, that was a retrenchment about, you know, the the, 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 the British establishment as such should be independent of a European influence and the, an, an ability to sort of engage. And, and, and that's an ongoing discussion for Great Britain as a country and individual countries within Great Britain, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. But it is becoming more entrenched in the everyday dialogue, which I think is tragic uh, in trying to understand even how people at home are being treated. It's not just about, hey, let's not treat other people. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's actually how there seems to be a move, um, again, not going into the political, but t- towards the, the right side of that, which is, you know, there was the piece yesterday about the 20% increase in the number of billionaires in the United Kingdom. Um, and yet people are struggling to eat their home and feed their families. Uh, which is a terrible consequence for a country of such power and 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 history as in Great Britain itself. Um, but I agree with you there. I do think there is this sense of it, can globalization continue from a business perspective, which it is, it, which it needs at the moment. Um, I mean, the whole, for example, if you take Apple and all their uh, devices are produced in China and. Uh, uh, um, by Foxconn, they're now looking at India and Vietnam as being other countries that can produce because the Chinese system is giving them too much trouble regarding the COVID policy that they have in place. Um, so you're perfectly right. The, 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 
the capitalist system needs the global trade to exist, to be honest, to maximize. But there's now that retrenchment we've seen it with regard to the election in Italy, um, you know, of saying, but no, it's about us first and it's about everybody else afterwards. I, I think that's a that's a tragic consequence of, of modernity in their, our current time. Because one of the things I always, I, I, the, the greatest institution I have respect for in the world is the United Nations, because I believe it is uh, one of 8 billion people that it represents and not individual flags. Um, but that context of being formed after the Second World War was to try and keep us as a species engaged and respectful of each other, that we would always live together happily and enjoy our company rather than ferment our individualism and become angry and start wars between each other. Hmm. But your point's well made, and tourism is closely linked to that. You know, after politics, I would suggest, and industry, tourism is the one that allows people to travel and respect other cultures and come home and saying, I had a glorious time. Yeah, and I'm still a thin believer that traveling and meeting other people and understanding how they live and the culture and all the rest of it reduces the grief in the world, but mm. it's having that ability to travel in the first place. So often when I'm training tour operators, and I was talking about the other day on a group coaching call, I was asked the question by an operator in Indonesia because they've had several disasters. Uh, and it's something operators don't do enough of. It's something the industry doesn't do enough of. And that's scenario planning or what if yeah. going forward. Yeah. Now, I'm pretty sure this week and last week, there's a lot of what if scenario planning going on because suddenly so many people have woken up to the power of artificial intelligence just with some of the developments in the last couple of weeks. But I'm still not really seeing scenario planning from the industry on the environmental changes that are happening. I'm seeing some discussion. Yeah. But I'm not really seeing any planning that takes care of what we've just been discussing for the last 20 minutes. Yeah. And, 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 and scenario planning, very much applicable to the risk analysis. Exact same. You know, uh, what's the risk? How do I plan? I think, I, think, I think there's two reasons for that, Peter, if I may suggest. I think people are um, too conditioned by what has happened in the past that they believe it won't happen then. I think that's one. And I think the second is they're too scared to do it. They're too scared to understand the consequences that if it does happen them, that it could devastate their business overnight, let alone get the tourists out of the particular location at that given moment in time. So I think there's there's an avoidance, uh, genuine. It's not the deliberate uh, in a negative way. It's just human nature does not like to face up to bad news unless only if it happens them. Yeah, it's it's quite happy to prepare for, or it's quite uh, sort of engaged by preparing for happy news because oh let's let's have the party let's do that it was very hard to have well you know let's have the the sort of the flooding scenario or practice run about what we do and where we go and what uh what boxes we move onto shelf six feet high it's 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 because it's not part of human nature it's not part of our dynamic as human beings it's it's a dynamic of experts it's a dynamic of the lifeguard the police you know okay guys you're trained in this because you you've got to be ready for it but we as normal citizens aren't. And but to your point, I think it's 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 a very relevant issue for companies to try and understand. We need to have some thought of this, you know? Something yep. that says I've invested a thousand pounds in buying these elements of safety that if I need them, I can pull them rather than saying I have nothing. Yeah, I did and I hate I hate what I'm about to say, but I think it's going to be the only way is companies particularly scale companies, but all companies, to expect the CEOs and the leadership boards 
to take action when they're in a competitive environment, when their actions will short-term damage their business versus their competitors who don't take actions, the chances are they're not going to take the actions mm. because they'll, most of them say the term, if you're the CEO or reasonable, you're probably only going to last several years. Mm-hmm. And therefore it's like, is it going to happen on my watch? Yeah. Or do I take the actions on my watch for the greater good of mankind 30, 50 years down the, yeah. down the track? But I sacrifice my shareholder value up front because of that. Yeah. Brave leadership both. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, brave leadership, but I would suggest you brilliant leadership. Yeah. Because I think more and more to the points that we've been talking about in the podcast here, more and more people are becoming aware. And as a result, they need the comfort blanket to feel that they're being cared for. And they need to hear that from the company. So it may be 93% about you're going to have a great time, but if this goes wrong, we've got this option and this option and this option, or we've got this scenario that we're we're prepared for or this, rather than a sense of you're left to the winds uh, if you're caught. Because it goes back to the electric vehicles to some extent. And to some extent, the the ability for us to understand what uh, petrol does with regard to carbon burn. More and more people are buying electric, partly because of price, partly because of uh, the ability to charge, but also because they're saying, you know what, I think I'm done with the petrol car because I do believe this problem is here. Yeah. Um, and and as a consequence, we're seeing that shift, which will only grow more rapidly because the analogy between COVID for me, and you hit on it earlier on, and climate change is COVID was a warning. And I don't care what anybody says. And I, COVID was a warning to say, look at the cause and effect with regard to COVID is, in theory, 72 hours. You could catch this and you could be in hospital and you could be in in, in seven days tragically pass. And I'm sure, and, and, and our condolences to anybody who's suffered from this, whether it's long COVID or other things, it's a tragedy, um, but a tragedy of, of the evolution of mankind, nobody's fault. Um, but it, it's it maybe a, a two to seven day. Climate change is a 12 to 25 year and because the cause and effect is imminent that you see it, the reality is as you move further along that 25 years, it's going to touch you. And how ready are you for it to touch? So COVID, by saying to the population, you know what, you really shouldn't go down to the local pub, is analogous to us with regard to climate change. You know, Do you know what, I'm not so sure you should go to Bangkok tomorrow because of potential climate issues. It's, it's, it's analogous. It's where I manage the cause and effect with regard to the risk I take. So when I look at human nature and what's happening, and you mentioned it earlier, we tend not to do stuff to the last minute, and companies are probably more prone to that than governments because we are profit-motivated and we're chasing the buck. Governments do to a certain extent as well. But I envisage regulation coming in to the travel industry on a scale that we've never ever seen before. And it's not going to be regulation suggested by the travel industry because we won't. We're too fragmented and too disparate all over the place. Mm. It will come from global governments regulating what the industry does. I, I can't disagree with that. The tragedy is it will come too late. Yeah. I mean, you know, somebody said to me recently, says, Andrew, what would you do? No, actually, somebody said to me four years ago, what would you do? I says, well, now remember, this is a pause. Uh, once uh, alternatives to carbon burn are enabled, everything comes back to normal. In other words, once the aircraft goes literally carbon neutral, then you can fly to Australia three times tomorrow if you want to. But he says, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd take every aircraft out of the air. He says, um, he says, what else would you do? I says, I'd close every coal-fired power station, even if we had outages. 
He said, what else would you do? I said, call a dairy herd by 50%. And he says, you're mad. I says, I'm not. He says, you're mad. 16 months later, that happened with COVID. Literally. Every aircraft was out of the air. Nobody was complaining. Nobody was complaining. Was going, you know what? I want to travel to London tomorrow to go to the theatre. They're going, no, no, no. I'm not going near the airport because cause and effect, I need to stay at home and look after my mother or whoever. The reality is that the cause, of, now mine are extreme views and I'm, I'm not saying they're right. Please don't get me wrong. But the blissful ignorance and the pace with which we are progressing this issue of climate, um, I have three words. Hell is coming. And, 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 and they're, they're strong words, and I'm sorry to use them, but the reality is climate in its current form and its balance that it has been for the last thousands of years has been the reason that we have proliferated and lived to have a beautiful quality of life relationship with this planet. But tragically, as the human body does if they're, if they're a drug addict, the world has become an energy addict, and as a consequence, the devastation the world will suffer will occur unless behavior is changed. And at the moment, behavior is not being changed. So what would you, just so we finish up here, remember who the community is. It's travel operators, but mainly small. We are not a community of global scaled operators that, that can make difference. But collectively, we're the size of a global, global scale. There's literally hundreds of thousands of small travel businesses, often mom and pop shops, family businesses. Most of them are aware. Most of them today are aware things are changing. And if you go in and see the, the communication, the media, the websites, most of them now have something to do with sustainability or the environmental mm -hmm. issue. Does it all make sense what they've got? No, it doesn't. Have they all got systems that are great systems? No, no, they haven't. But most of them are starting to pay attention. So what would your advice be? for travel operators who are small, medium-sized, how should they, one, be communicating and what actions should they be taking to, to be able to be at the lead of this rather than just be forward? Uh, it's a great question, and here's what I would suggest. Uh, up front, talk about the benefits of the business model that's being adopted to facilitate this. In other words, look at your carbon burn. So that once you arrive at the airport, because the, the flight is not your brief, the flight is not your problem. But once they arrive, you look at the, what the carbon burn will be relative to that seven-day or 14-day journey and quantify it with regard to minimizing its contribution so that there's a sense of understanding by the tourists that these people care, as I should, about the journey I'm about to go on and try and document as much as possible different touch points whereby we value nature, we value the dynamics. So in other words, you can visit Edinburgh and have a brilliant day shopping, uh, but then when you go to some rural part outside Edinburgh that is is is, is sort of a beautiful ex sort of statement of nature and our identity with nature, is to take the time, possibly to have a, a, a lecture on something associated with it, but to take the time saying, look, we want to offer you both extremes here. Um, we know you want to, to buy the... The Scottish garments in Edinburgh, and we respect that, and that I would want to do the same myself. Um, but it, and also within those Scottish garments, we may be also talking to the tweed companies and the, and 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 those companies saying, guys, you need to help us here because we need to see the relevance of the climate production piece in your business model 
to help us understand what they're doing as uh, being very effective citizens. Um, and, and allowing people to feel uh, that that care is an indicative part of the business offering on this trip. Because I think I think in the past it was about shipping people, you drop them outside the store, they went in the shop, and then you picked them in the restaurant. But now it's about, you know, you're coming to visit uh, the whole environment of where I live. And I have a duty of care to that whole environment, uh, to show it to you and to, to provide it to you in every form, but also to protect it. And the way I would like to protect it is this. Um, and um, there may be some areas where there's a cost associated with some of that protection that people have the choice to, to sort of take. And uh, there may be some connection that the company can have to a local uh, environmental um, uh, issue or, or sort of development where they can say, look, at, we sponsor this or we're part of this. Um, but I just, I, I think there's, from a, a marketing perspective, I think there's a lot that the businesses can do, small and very small, to say, you know what, we care. Because I believe a lot of the rural, especially, but of a lot of the tourist companies that you're talking about, are not reporting to the stock market, are not at all. You know, their value. Oh. <laughs> so being able to, they're, they're number for many of them, it's a love of what they do that allows them to to build a lifestyle, that allows them to exist and to enjoy. Um, and it's not about becoming rich, rich, rich. So yeah. I, I think for a lot of those companies and people, I think guidance and direction is how do I do it, guys? Tell me, how do I do it? Whether there's a platform from the Scottish Tourism Board, whether there's something that says, okay, guys, you know, there's a half-day seminar, you know, help you build your materials to make the statement, you know, whether it's fishing, whether it's whether it's sightseeing, whether it's boat trips, whatever. Um, but where's the statement? So that I come along and your vehicle is electric or your vehicle is hybrid. Uh, I drive a hybrid Prius that says, you know what, I haven't been able to make the jump yet, but we're on the way to that jump. Um, I think that's what I would suggest for will be very strong messaging for people considering to take that trip rather than those who don't care about the topic. Yeah, I think the two words you mentioned there will resonate with the community. It's we care. Yeah, and I yeah. think if we communicate that, yeah. the, the, the public are on the same journey. So I think if you link the two together, I do think you make little steps. Yeah. We eventually get there. Yeah. Whether we get there fast enough, I have no idea. I'll leave that up to the scientists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the government. And the government. Yeah. <laughs> I'd just like to thank you for all your time and your thoughts, Edna. That was fascinating. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on here and give us some thoughts on probably what, not probably, is our most important subject. We're going to have to address this. Otherwise, all the other stuff we address is not going to be that relevant. Well, it's lovely to talk to you, Peter, and lovely to talk to your listeners in the context of the journey they're on. Because I think tomorrow's world is about caring. And uh, if we all do it together, then we definitely can leave a better place for our children and our grandchildren to be able to enjoy as we have in our lives as well. well on name words, I will say thank you, Edna. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you.